Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, have we got a show for you today. We will be talking about two murders, a rape, glass coffins, and stolen shoes, and that's all in the first two songs. (laughs) (laughs) You think he's kidding. He is not kidding. It's incredible, the stories involved in this album. Yes, it really is. It's I mean, it's something special that we get to do when we go into an album that is by, quote-unquote, various artists, because we, we're exploring all kinds of stories. But this is, this is one for the ages. I'm excited to get into it. Here we go with the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. We hope that you'll join us and have the time of your life Just be our baby. Be our little baby. (laughs) Okay, Dee, before we get into it track by track, some people might feel like the Dirty Dancing soundtrack, why are you covering the Dirty Dancing soundtrack that's not really kind of in our sweet spot? But listen, this is a top five selling album of the 1980s. It is one of the best-selling albums of all time. It was released in the 80s. It has multiple hits from the 80s, including the best song of the year. I mean, it's it, it's definitely our wheelhouse. It's just that you might not realize it's our wheelhouse. That's true. So you pick up the Dirty Dancing soundtrack, and you're going to think, well, okay, so this is going to be all songs from the late 50s, early 60s, because that's the time period of the movie. But in fact, especially when you got the first part of the album, it's mostly brand new songs. Yeah, it is. Here, here's the thing that blew me away okay so i knew this was a big thing i heard it on the radio every time i turned it on i mean dirty dancing was a force in 87 and 88 yeah undeniable yeah right yeah but this is the thing that blew me away okay here's the top five selling albums of the decade yes number one thriller no, no surprise there yeah right which we have done track by track yes episode one yes number two is back in black which we've done track by track Yes. No surprise there. No surprise. Go back to that episode. Great episode. Number three was Bad by Michael Jackson. Which we covered. Track by track. Yes. Number four is Dirty Dancing. Here we are. We're checking this one off the box. Clicking this box today. We've We've got several others on this list. And number five was Appetite for Destruction. Dang. We matched up one versus three, <laughs> two versus five. And the funny thing is, is that the Dirty Dancing soundtrack is the number four selling album of the 1980s. Saturday Night Fever is the number four selling album of the 1970s. See, that's important. If you are just tuning in to us for the first time, welcome aboard. Shirley fan anew. <laughs> we have in the last two episodes covered Dirty Dancing the movie versus Saturday Night Fever the movie. And now we are covering Dirty Dancing the soundtrack versus Saturday Night Fever the soundtrack. And at the end, I think we'll probably rank them all one, two, three, four. Yeah, absolutely. When we said which of these albums are we going to cover first, I said to you, well, let's do Dirty Dancing first because it's got the older songs and then we move into the 70s and that kind of makes sense that way. But as it turns out, it's kind of a back and forth ping pong thing because you've got songs from the 50s and 60s and you've got songs from the 80s. And then when we cover Saturday Night Fever, we're going to have songs from the 70s. So we're covering four decades of music all in two podcast episodes. Literally, when we do this matchup, this will be the first time we venture into the 50s, the first time we venture into the 60s. Next week, we're going to venture into the 70s for the first time. Yeah. So anyway, it's going to be fun. This album was so successful that they literally created a sequel album that was released in March of 1988. With a very creative title, More Dirty Dancing. This is... Okay. (laughs) The original Dirty Dancing soundtrack was number one for 18 weeks. On May 7th, 1988, Dirty Dancing soundtrack was number one. More Dirty Dancing was number three. 
It's crazy. Best-selling album. That is crazy. People were nuts for this music. And it doesn't make any sense. We're talking about 1987. What were the albums and the bands that we were listening to in 1987? It dislodged Bruce Springsteen from the number one spot. Yep. George Michael knocked it out a couple of times. Yep. But we're talking about Appetite for Destruction. We're talking about Hysteria. We're talking about Kick. We're talking about Girls, Girls, Girls. We're talking about White Snake, White Snake. Big albums. Big albums that are hard rock albums. And what we have is a soundtrack from a low-budget movie starring two people who were largely unknown at the time, topping the charts and becoming one of the best-selling albums in history. 32 million albums sold. Do you know that this is the all-time greatest-selling album in Germany? Yeah. All time! (laughs) This is the thriller of Germany! So the popularity of this album actually caught the producers by surprise. The album had one million copies on back order before a single had even been released. What? Yeah. 18 weeks at number one on the Billboard 200 album sales charts and went platinum 11 times. One thing I want you to put a pin in, okay? Yeah. yeah. The album was released July 18th, 1987. Yeah. The movie was released August 21st, 1987. Uh-huh. So almost, well, a little over a month later. Yeah. Put a pin in that because one of the singles was dangling out there for a month unhelped by the movie. Wow. Okay? Yeah. Put a pin in that. Yeah, and it's interesting when you think about like Footloose in comparison to that, where they released the soundtrack before. The soundtrack was already a huge success by the time the movie had come out. This is an entirely different scenario. So we talked earlier about how important the soundtrack was in all of the movie. We talked about how Eleanor Bergstein, the writer of the movie, went to her old 45s, her old vinyls, and made herself a mixtape. And this was the way that she pitched the movie to people. She would give them a copy of this mixtape, give the producer a copy of the mixtape and say, here's my idea for the movie. And she was rejected and rejected and rejected. But then years would go by and the producers would call her back up and say, hey, I've worn out that EB's dirty dancing tape you gave me. Could you give me another copy? You realize you said no. (laughs) (laughs) No on the movie. Love the soundtrack. So this soundtrack, this tape that she had, she used it as her guiding light as she wrote the script. The soundtrack came first, then she wrote the script. Are we ready? Yeah, let's jump in. All right, let's dive in. Before we get going on the music, let me just say this. We talked in our last episode about how it was so difficult to get the rights to this music. And I brought up the fact that they they got rid of one guy and brought in another guy. The guy they brought in was a guy named Jimmy Einer. That name's going to come up a few times as we're talking today. Right. I just want to say, Einer and his brother Don Einer founded the publishing house CAMUSA in the 70s. Don Einer is a name you may have heard of before. He went on to become the president of Columbia Records and the president of Sony Music. So, not too shabby, right? right. But at this time, in the 80s, Jimmy Einer was really, he was a record producer. He had been in a band, of course, on, on his own. But he was kind of a guy who was able to do both things. He was able to handle business side things and also a a very proficient producer. And he's been responsible for some of the remixing of some of these songs. But he's the guy that I said last episode, he went and kissed Phil Spector's big toe. Yes, yes. In order to get the rights to some of these songs. And had he not done that, we would not have the movie that we had and we would not have the soundtrack. It's going to be amazing. Yeah. It's fascinating stuff. Okay, we ready? Yeah. All right. Diving into our first song on the album. Yeah. Be My Baby. Hold on. Wait a minute. Wait, wait. I feel like we're forgetting something. Nah, never mind. Let's just keep on going. Be My Baby. Be My Baby. Let's hear it. Be 
Okay, you hear this first drum beat? It's unmistakable. It's huge. It was an accident. <laughs> okay. So the guy who did the drum beat on this one is Hal Blaine, and he was a member of the Wrecking Crew. The Wrecking Crew was Phil Spector's studio band that became Brian Wilson's studio band for Pet Sounds, which is regarded as one of the best albums of all time. They were the most proficient musicians. It included Glenn Campbell, which we talked about back in our Toto episode, and Hal Blaine was the drummer. And he said that famous drum intro was an accident. I was supposed to play the snare on the second beat as well as the fourth, but I dropped the stick. Being a faker, I left the mistake in and it became ba 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 boom. And so everyone wanted that beat. That's an amazing story. Drop my stick and faked it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I asked our buddy James Buckley, I'm like, hey, awesome. you're the drummer. I'm not the drummer. Does yeah. this have a name? He goes, no, but it's like the most famous phrase in drum history. Yeah. There's no real name for it. It's just the accident that happened and everybody loved. Right. So that phrase has been used by Billy Joel, by Taylor Swift, by Meatloaf, by The Carpenters, by Amy Winehouse. And I even sent him... The first song on Poison's Look What the Cat Dragged In album, I said, this is it too, right? And he's like, yep. Yep, that's it. That was awesome. So this song was performed by the Ronettes. Yes. And we mentioned Phil Spector earlier, and man, is there a host of stories here. Oh my gosh, we could we could spend a week here. Yeah. So the Ronettes started with Veronica Bennett, who became Ronnie Spector. Yes. Three females who were black and sang harmony together were the end thing at this time, right? And so here was their plan. She had her, her sister, and their cousin all dress in the same dress, okay. wear their hair the same, and go stand in a line outside of a famous club. And as they're standing in line, sure enough, their plan works, and some guy opens the door and he's like, hey, you're late, get in here. And they got in by mistake. Somebody thought they were the band. They were not the band. Oh, wow. They got out there. They had practiced singing before and they did a whole lot of fun dancing for everybody in the crowd. And it was that that led to them becoming the Ronettes. That is an incredible story. Yeah. Those of you who don't remember, this was used during the opening scene of Dirty Dancing. It's that uh, sort of sepia-toned, slow-motion introduction of the Dirty Dancing to this song. Yeah, the preview so that you're not so shocked when you see it later on in the movie of the Dirty Beat. There was a clear distinction. There was Clean Teen, which is what Baby listened to before Uh The Night in the Basement, and then the Dirty Dancing, which was her rhythm. We talked about how that scene had to be her going into Oz. They didn't have enough money to film an opening scene for Dirty Dancing. So they had to kind of create something out of the footage that they had. So they came up with that sepia tone, Dirty Dancing scene, the intro to Dirty Dancing like we talked about. But Emil Ardolino, Eleanor Bergstein, and Linda Gottlieb watched that scene and were trying to figure out the perfect song to play over that scene. Mm -hmm. They played 400 songs. Oh my gosh. When they finally hit Be My Baby... All three in unison were like, this is it. It wasn't until we started studying this that I realized how big a song this was. I just, I mean, it was just in that group of cool, doo kind of 60s songs sure. that I knew. I didn't realize what kind of megaton bomb this thing was. Right. The song was so perfect that they had to go battle for it. Linda Gottlieb said they paid $75,000 for the use of that song. Yeah. It was played for 30 seconds. And when you think, oh, 75000 is not that much. Well, it is when your budget's $4.5 million yeah. for the entire movie. Right. For a 30 seconds worth of song. Right. And you've also got 
11 other songs that you're trying to get. Exactly. And actually, it was more like 20 other songs that you're trying to get. That's right. I talked to my dad about this song, and I played two songs for him. Be My Baby was released August of 1963, and it reached number two on the charts. And I'm like, what song is better than Be My Baby, right? Yeah. You know, you, you know yeah, I like I to do it. this, right? I love it. I love it. What is it? So I played for him the song Sugar Shack by Jimmy Gilmer and the Fireballs. Yeah. And to me, it's kind of a kind of a goofy song anyway i played it for him i'm like which of these two songs is the bigger song and he's like be my baby and now he knew both right it's just interesting that for whatever reason that at that moment in time sugar shack was the hot song it's the difference between hot now and hot forever right you ready to talk about ronnie specter and and phil specter phil specter and the madness that ensued yes let's do it so Ronnie Spector, as part of the Ronettes, was heard by Phil Spector, and he thought, this is this is the band I want to hang my hat on. And this, really, this song is where he truly built his wall of sound style of producing. He and the Wrecking Crew spent hours and hours and hours playing the song before they ever hit the record button. So he was... An absolute perfectionist. As we know, he was also completely mental, right? Convicted murderer, Phil Spector. Right. He wasn't convicted at this time. That's true. was well before all of that. But, but yes, that's that's a story that we definitely need to talk about. (laughs) So he's got this music, and he's he's the one who wrote this song. I mean, him and a couple of other guys. But you think about the words to this song, it's kind of almost foreshadowing as to what his life's going to be like with Ronnie of this, I'm going to infant you as well as completely dedicate my life to you and so anyway he's he's got this music he finally in 45th take they finally record the one that they're going to use and then they bring ronnie in to record the vocals and she spent three days practicing the vocals all of which she spent in the bathroom of the gold star recording studio (laughs) she's like they're supposed to have this amazing sound in gold star studios well i can tell you the bathroom sounds even better because of the echo wow it was because of that echo that i had all my oohs and and ooh-ah-wahs and all of those things that came from me practicing in there she said when i went in there and laid down the vocal track everybody in the band was like telling me how wonderful i was and i was going to be the next billy holiday Wow, fantastic. So, obviously this gets them noticed and on the charts. They go out to London and start touring. You know who their opening band was? The Rolling Stones. Wow. The Rolling Stones were opening for the Ronettes. Wow. While they were out there, they met... The Beatles. This was before Beatlemania. This was before 1964 and everybody went crazy. And she'll say, Beatlemania is what killed that doo-wop sound. Okay. You know, like everybody was about the British invasion and nobody cared about groups snapping their fingers anymore. Sure. But at the time, she made friends with them. They weren't super famous. And so they're touring England. They're a band in England. So they become friends. She even went on a few dinner dates with John Lennon when the Beatles eventually came to the States. Interesting. Yes. And uh, it was at that point that Phil Spector said to her, because they got offered to tour with the Beatles. The Ronettes were going to tour with the Beatles. And he said, you can go on tour with them or you can marry me, but you can't do both. And so she thought, well, he's a producer, and I love him, and this is a way to get every song I want recorded, so I'm going to go with option B. Terrible move. You could say that, yes. <laughs> you could say that. We could literally spend a, a week podcasting about this. 
So tell me what you know about the marriage of Ronnie Spector well, and Phil Spector. Ronnie Spector wrote a book about her life with Phil Spector. I haven't read the book and I don't know a whole lot, but I do know that he was very abusive, very controlling of her, mm-hmm. would not let her leave the house. How did he keep her from leaving the he house? He stole her shoes. He stole her shoes. And he figured if I have every one of her shoes, she can't leave. This dude was obviously nuts from the outset. Nuts. Now, he gets a lot of credit for the wall of sound and all this other stuff. He he produced the Beatles. He did all these wonderful musical things. He was also a psycho, manipulative, abusive husband. There is a strong overlap between psychotic and genius. And this guy was walking the line on that one. He bought a coffin with a glass cover and told her if she ever leaked him, he would kill her and put her in it and let everybody look at her dead. They tried to have children. Okay. Couldn't have any children, so they decided to adopt. He treated their son nearly as badly as he treated her. Kept him in his room, locked up without a bathroom. It was pretty bad. Then, a few years later, he adopts twins without asking her. Without her consent, without her knowledge, he goes and adopts twins. What? It's crazy. It is really, really crazy. And I mean, she she literally has to escape by running away, and her mother has to protect her from this crazy man. Okay, I mean, we could we could spend a lot of time here, but <laughs> yeah. here's the thing that blew me away. Okay, so yeah, so set Ronnie Spector aside for just yeah. a second, and mm-hmm. I know we we don't really want to get into this, but right. one of my '80s guilty pleasure movies uh-huh. is a John Landis movie that has. Steve Gutenberg, Rosanna Arquette, Arsenio Hall, yeah. Andrew Dice Clay. Yeah. He's got all these bit parts in it. It's called Amazon Women on the Moon. Okay? And it's funny. It's just a lot of fun. Right. There's a scene in the movie where they actually go and visit the moon, and there's a woman there. Her name's Lana Clarkson. Uh-huh. She's actually the woman that Phil Spector killed and later went to jail for. So Lana Clarkson was a struggling actress. She had been in some sort of sword and sorcery movies. She had been in Amazon Women the Moon. She had been on Three's Company. And she was working as a waitress. She wasn't giving him the time of day, but the management said, hey, that's Phil Spector. Go take good care of him. You got to treat him like gold. And he said, hey, you want to take a ride in my limo? And she's like, okay, I guess. Took her back to his house, propositioned her. She refused, and he blew her head off. He said she kissed the barrel and the gun went off. Uh-huh. Jerry didn't buy that. No, they did not. Man, I, I kind of want to know more about Phil Spector, but since this is not a true crime podcast, right. we're going to move on. I'm going to I'm going to circle it back over to the song because I'm going to yes, hopefully, hopefully blow your mind okay. with this piece of information. Okay, okay you ready? let's go. Yes. So they are recording Be My Baby. Phil Spector has a friend of his over and his girlfriend, and they're waiting for the backup singers to show up. Backup singers supposed to be Darlene Love. She doesn't show up. Okay. Maybe she's scared of Phil. I don't know what it is, but she didn't show up. And so Phil is not the guy who likes to be kept waiting. And so he's like, hey, man, I heard your girl can sing. Can she sing? And he's like, well, yeah, she can sing. And the girl tries to explain what her level of expertise is. And Phil says, I don't care. Just go in there. I just need some noise. The guy, Sonny Bono, the girl, share. <laughs> Let's go. Where are you going to get that information other than the Shirley podcast? Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. That is fantastic. We'll be here all night. <laughs> Way to go. You're blowing my mind, man. You're blowing my mind. I got something for you. Okay. Do you know the song that plays while David and Maddie consummate their relationship on Moonlighting? Could it be Be My Baby? It is Be My Baby. Yeah. <laughs> we like to throw it back to Moonlighting whenever we can. Uh, we love Moonlighting. We got to talk yeah. about Moonlighting one yep. of these days. Yep. Let's talk just briefly about the song Take Me Home Tonight. Take me home tonight. 
Eddie Money? Yeah, so I can remember... I don't, I don't like that song. I never have. It was annoying to me. It was on all the time and annoyed me. You're crazy. And the be my little baby that kept... I was like, ah, oh, this is so annoying. I had no idea that, just like Ronnie says, meant it was Ronnie and that Be My Little Baby was from the 60s song. That is a direct reference to that song about 50 times in that song, Take Me Home Tonight. And that's her singing and she's in the video. She's doing the oh, 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 oh. And she looked pretty good. She did. She looked great. Yeah. She looked fantastic in 86. Yeah. I saw an interview with her on Letterman in 83 and you could tell that she was probably self-medicating in order to get past the <laughs> the life that she had experienced with Phil Spector. Well. So at one point, she's complimenting Paul, and she says, I love him so much. He's like the Woody Allen of rock and roll. <laughs> like, what does that Thank even you. mean? Just a little cute. <laughs> okay, we got to talk Brian Wilson for just a second. Oh, yeah, of I course. don't want to derail the whole podcast on no. Be My Baby, but we have to talk about Brian Wilson. So... Without this song, we might not have had pet sounds. Oh, it's insane, right? Yeah. So Brian Wilson was driving his car one day with his girlfriend. Yep. And he's driving down the road, minding his own business, and on the radio comes Be My Baby. Yep. He literally is thunderstruck. Yeah. He has to pull the car over. Yeah. And it's like psychologically jacked his brain, right? Yeah. He has to pull it over and like analyze the song. Like, what's going on here? Because this is blowing my mind. Right. The vocals, the guitars, the Wallace sound, all that is just blowing him away. Yeah. And it literally affected him for decades afterwards. It is an amazing song. Let's just say that. We didn't really even talk about the music and the song itself, but it is an amazing song. If you listen to the the strings that are behind it, I mean, the, the engineer said he wept as he was mixing the, the strings in with the rest of the song. And it is truly amazing, but I think it may have hit Brian Wilson harder than it hit <laughs> any other human being in the world. He would obsess over the song like... A Islamic convert obsesses over the Quran. It's yes. one of the things that I read. He was mesmerized by it. He's, he would be like, listen to this. It sounds like the beating of a branch in the wind and a baby's rattle and the call of the mockingbird. I mean, just it was affecting him in a significant and severe way. But in a real and practical way, he went, okay, who are the musicians on this album? I got to meet Phil Spector, I got to talk to him, and I got to find out who's playing this music. And it's because of that that we get the Wrecking Crew and their contribution to music history in Pet Sounds. Don't Worry Baby is a sequel that he wrote for the Ronettes to make a sequel to Be My Baby. Let's listen to Don't Worry Baby real quick. Some classic. Yeah, and I can totally hear the Ronettes singing that as a sequel, but they said no. So the Beach Boys took it and made it an instant classic for them. Absolutely. I thought it was interesting. The DJ who played the song when he got thunderstruck in his car? Yeah. Wink Martindale. Okay. He's the like game show host from like Tic-Tac-Toe and oh all these Oh my gosh. Wink Martindale. Oh my gosh. Wow. So his daughter, Carney Wilson? Yeah. From Wilson Phillips? Yes. She said that during her childhood, she awoke every single morning to boom, 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 bam. (laughs) Wow. He compared it to Einstein's theory of relativity. 
We could spend all day here. We probably need to move on. I think the fact that Brian Wilson had some psychological issues and Phil Spector had some psychological issues meant that there was a meeting of the unstable minds on this one. Hey, you know what? One thing I got to bring up before we move on. Yeah. When Phil Spector was in jail, he still had control of this song and he would not allow Ronnie Spector to play it at her concerts. Talk about a freak, man. Yeah. And both of them passed away last year, right? I believe that's right. Yeah. yeah. Dick Clark called it the record of the century when he introduced them. Wow. On American Bandstand. And now they use it in Cialis commercials. <laughs> That's the best segue I've ever heard. What's ne- what's our next song? Next song on the album, song number <laughs> three, is She's Like the Wind. She's like the wind through my tree. She rides the night next to me. See, this song is by Patrick Swayze. Patrick Swayze, born in Houston, Texas, second child of Patsy Swayze, a dancer, choreographer, dance instructor, and like the dance person in Texas. That's right. His dad was an engineer and draftsman, but while he was in school, he developed skills in ice skating, ballet dancing, classical ballet, acted in the school plays, was a football player hoping for a scholarship until he injured his knee and wasn't able to play anymore. Which is why he had no dancing on his acting resume. That, and he wanted to be known as an actor, not a dancer. But he did keep dancing. He also did martial arts, which came into play later on for Roadhouse. Yes, it did. A few other beautiful movies that he made. Yes, it did. Um, He said he used it to channel his self-deprecating rage. Okay. All right. So he met... In 1970, a lady named Lisa Neiman. Okay. She was a student in his mom's dance classes. And 72, he went to New York City to complete his formal dance training at the Harkness Ballet and Joffrey Ballet schools. And then, in 1975, he married Lisa. Yeah, they stayed married until his death. Yeah, he said that she was the inspiration for this song. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. That's sweet. Here's the interesting thing about why this song got on this album. Yeah. Okay. They were desperate for songs. They were trying they had a lot of songs that they wanted, but they needed originals because the ones that were already popular were too expensive and too hard to get. So Patrick's standing there and he's like, Hey, guess what? I've got a song. Yeah. So it turns out he wrote a song for the movie Grandview USA. He wrote it for the character that Jamie Lee Curtis played in that movie. Yeah. Well, they didn't accept it. Right. So he tried to get it put in on the Youngblood soundtrack in 1986. So he'd been turned down twice at this point when they are filming Dirty Dancing. So they're like, well, yeah, we'll bring it in, dude. Let me, let's hear it, you know? Lisa Gottlieb listens and says, I love it. Let's put it in. It's cheap. It's available. He's standing right here. (laughs) It sounds good. Let's do it. It reached number three on the Hot 100, D. You want to hear the two better songs? Sure, yes. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) The only reason I bring it up is because they're fairly notable songs, all right? All right, yeah. So this reached number three on February 27th, 1988. Okay. The Dirty Dancing soundtrack is still extremely hot at this time. Okay. Okay. The songs that were number one and number two. Number one was Father Figure by George Michael. Yeah, okay. Number two was What Have I Done to Deserve This by the Pet Shop Boys. Okay, yeah. And then the next week, She's Like the Wind stayed at number three and got leapfrogged. Never gonna give you up, never gonna let you down, never gonna 
by Never Gonna Give You Up by Rick Astley. <sighs> well, he got Rick rolled. He did get Rick rolled. That's tragic. <laughs> All right, D, we got to talk about the music video for She's Like the Wind really quick. Okay. Nothing fancy. Lots of clips from the movie. Patrick Swayze all over the place. Yeah. Do you know who the director of the She's Like a Wind video is? I did not look that one up, sir. David freaking Fincher. Get the heck out of town. David Fincher is the director. Oh my gosh. Seven. Fight Club. What? Panic Room. Gone Girl. Zodiac. The Social Network. Oh my gosh. David Fincher is one of the best directors in Hollywood right now. Wow. And he's cutting his teeth on a Patrick Swayze love song. That's fantastic. What do you think of this one? I love this song. It's beautiful, right? It's beautiful. And I was, you know, amazed when I first learned that it was him that was singing. I was just like, oh, this doesn't sound like him to me. Now, once I know that he's singing, I'm like, okay, I can hear his voice in it. But he's got a very distinct singing style compared to what he sounds like speaking. Yeah. This reached number one on the adult contemporary chart. And because it's Patrick Swayze, it's literally one of the most high profile one hit wonders of all time. Yeah, it's a beautiful song, and I'm, I'm glad that he finally found somebody who said, yes, let's put it in our movie. Yeah, me too. Yeah. All right, next song on the album is a song called Hungry Eyes. Okay, so the music on this is awesome. I gotta tell you, I didn't dive into the intricacies of the music on these songs. I just like listening to them. I'm, sure. I'm not rushing out to learn how to play the guitar solo on this particular song. <laughs> it's just these are kind of adult contemporary style of music, and for me, I just want to listen to it. And I enjoy it. It is adult contemporary, but it's fun. Yeah, and I used to slow dance to it when I was a kid in the 80s, too. Yeah, I bet. This is on the makeout list of 88. Absolutely. 100%. Absolutely. This song was written by Frankie Privet and John D. Nicola. Yes. They also wrote another song on this album, which we'll cover in a little while. Sure. And it was sung by Eric Carmen. I got to issue a formal apology, okay? Uh-huh. When we covered Footloose, I talked about Eric Carmen and I talked about the fact that he had written this song. He did not write this song. Right. He only performed it. He happened to be one of the guys that Jimmy Einer, who I talked about earlier, produced. And so he got a call from Jimmy that said, hey, I got a song. I'd like you to come sing it. Yeah, this is a remake. Frankie Privet released this song and was a mild hit in 1984. It's off their album, Making the Point. So this is an actual remake. Okay. You know, we've talked a few times before where a song is released and it just doesn't quite hit, but people think, you know, this is a good song. We need to give this another life. Yeah. So they asked Eric Carmen to sing it and they re-recorded it, re-put it out there, and it made it to number four on the Hot 100. Now, Eric Carmen, I'll just tell you this. I didn't get into his history last time when we talked about Footloose. Right. He was the one that said, I effing love it on on the lyrics from Almost Paradise. Almost Paradise, right. But anyway, he loved music from an early age, was classically trained on the piano, picked up the guitar and taught himself how to play, and was a member of a group called the Raspberries for a while. Uh And they had some mild success, and then he went solo. And when he was solo, he had a huge single called All By Myself. 
song when I was young. Oh yeah, you can't mistake this. Yes. You can't mistake this. And I love there's a comedy bit on this of when does all by myself go from, from being something good to something bad? You know, when the little kid does something, they're like, look daddy, I did it all by myself. <laughs> to all by myself. <laughs> Here's something I did not know though. Okay. He based this song on Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto Number no. 2. I had no idea. What? I just thought this is a cool pop song. It is based on a classical concerto. Okay, I gotta ask you. Yeah. Have you watched the music video to this lately? No. You're, you're missing out. I have to say, I can probably imagine, because Eric Carmen appeared on stage during the Dirty Dancing Live tour that occurred shortly after the movie was such a big success. And he was in a black muscle t-shirt without much muscles, but lots of chest hair. <laughs> a sequined shoulder padded jacket. Yeah. And the big hair that every girl that you knew in the eighth grade had. Interesting. Yeah, well, it was special. I gotta tell you. It, you're really missing out if you don't go back and watch the music videos on this because it's part of the package, yeah, right? Yeah. So I watched the music video. Yeah. So you have Eric Carmen and he's watching like a projector version of Dirty Dancing on the Wall. So you've got little clips of the movie in the background or whatever. Right. Smoking hot model. Okay. That he's got hungry eyes for. Uh-huh. They got hungry eyes for each other. All right. Okay. But this is where the video goes off the rails for me, okay? Okay. So they they keep staring at each other, and nothing's really happening, and little clips of Dirty Dancing. And then the sax solo comes, and who plays the sax solo? The smoking Hot Model. <laughs> right? And then at the very end, like they've been making eyes at each other the whole time, she's with a guy that is like a grip for the music video. He's like a graying, short, balding guy who's just like standing there. So she plants one on him, and I'm like, who is this guy? I mean, it just looks like she grabs somebody off the street. And then when her face, like, emerges from the kiss, uh-huh. it's a different girl. What? Beavis and Butthead would have a field day with this video. The original girl left in the middle of the video to she, go play backup for Robert Palmer. I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh, that's fantastic. Now yeah. I'll have to go check that one out. That, that is awesome. So... In the movie, this is one of the most memorable scenes, right? This is the scene that we talked about where you have Johnny and Baby dancing and standing behind Baby guiding her is Penny. And you have this look of longing from Penny as she looks down as Johnny is starting to fall in love with Baby, who, you know, is already in love with him. It's the threesome dancing montage. They almost said we can't put this scene in yet because it's too early. It's given, it's tipping our hand. But I mean, who didn't know that that was what was going to happen? Of course. Right. Of course. Great okay. song. Great song. Love it. This song reached number four, February 13th of 88. Okay. So make out song of 88 on Valentine's Day. Yep. The same week that She's Like the Wind hit number 10 is rocketing up the chart. Okay. All right. Moving on. All right, D. So the next song on the album is a song called Stay. Hey. Okay, we can't talk too long on this song because it's only a minute and... 136. The song was written by Maurice Williams. Yes. This performed by Maurice Williams and the Zodiacs. Right. 
He was 15. 1953, he's 15. He's in the car with a girl, and he's trying to get her to not go home. <laughs> he fails, but he was like, man, that seemed like a good tagline for a song. Just stay. And he said, like a flood, the words just came to me. So he wrote this song when he was 15. Uh-huh. He's with a girl. Yep. He's trying to keep her from going home. Yep. In the lyrics, he's like, your daddy won't mind. Right. So he develops a couple of bands. They get out of high school. They start touring around, not having a whole lot of success. At that time, they're called the Royal Charms. But then as they're touring, their station wagon breaks down in Bluefield, West Virginia, if you'd like to know. <laughs> Which, not too far away, they would be recording Dirty Dancing 20-something years later. Right. They come across a British-built Ford car known as the Zodiac. And that is where they got their name, Maurice Williams and the Zodiac. Oh, cool. Now, they had a song called Little Darlin', which you've probably heard before, but not by them. Got covered by another Canadian group called The Diamonds. And then they weren't really ex super excited about Stay, but this 10-year-old girl hears the song and says, that song is incredible, and it's her, causes them to go, you know what, we should go ahead and put that on the demo tape that we send out, and that's how the song became famous. The 10-year-old girl loved it. Yeah. They recorded it in 1959 in a Kwanzaa hut, which, by the way, the Shirley be Serious Podcast Studio is also inside of Kwanzaa Hut. It's a great place to record. <laughs> We're fancy. We're yeah. fancy. This is You're the good. shortest number one song in Billboard history. In history. It's so short that it was made a part of another longer song by Jackson Brown later on. Yeah. Jackson Brown played it at the end of all of his concerts. I thought that was kind of a cool. The Four Seasons have covered this. Yep. I listened to Cindy Lauper's version last night. It's good. good. It's a good song. Yep. I like this song. But it's been over for like three, four minutes I now, know, right? so probably time to move on to our next song. Last song on side one. Yes. This is obviously not a 60s song. Right. This is a modern song. Yeah. And it was released as a single. I didn't know that. Really? I yeah, did not this, know that this either. Is, this was one of the ones that was one of the four that were released as a single. Because I, I remember I was like, I know that I've heard this song on the radio before. But it was because it was released as a single. Now, it's by a lady named Mary Clayton. She spells her name M-E-R-R-Y. Do you know why? She's born on Christmas Day. Merry Christmas. Merry freaking Christmas. Yep. only she had been in Dumb and Dumber, we would have come full circle. <laughs> Mary! This song is about deciding to have sex for the first time. Yeah. It's like driving around, I don't think I know. No. Yes! Yes! <laughs> we are going to do it. <laughs> Got her to stay. Do you know who the person who is originally going to sing this song? No. Mary Wells. Okay. Okay. Now, you may remember her from the song My Guy. Yeah. My Guy. My Guy. Yeah. Yeah. She was hired to record the song, but when she came to the studio to cut it, she had a horrible cold, uh -huh. and then she just said, forget this crap, I'm out of here, and just left. Yep. So the producer's like, sitting there, ready to record, he's got nobody to record it. Well, one of the backup singers is Mary Clayton. Okay. And he's like, oh God, now I'm going to have to explain this. And he's like, Mary Wells, Mary Clayton, close enough. Yeah. They won't even notice. Hi, this is Mary. Yeah. So because their names were the same, yeah. he didn't have to do any explaining, and he just said, Mary Clayton, would you like to sing this song? And she's like, yes. 
Yes. <laughs> okay. That's awesome. Now wait a minute. I got I got to play this for you. Okay. Because when I saw the name Mary Clayton, I knew exactly who it was. Okay. And you're saying you don't know who this is. Yeah. Okay. Let me play this song for you. Okay. We talked about it on our Goodfellas episode. Yes, we did. So this is Gimme Shelter by the Stones. What do you got? Okay. So Mary Clayton in the 60s when Gimme Shelter was being recorded. Yep. Got a call in the middle of the night. Okay. Her producer's like, hey, these guys are in from England. They're the rolling something or others. We're not really sure who they are. <laughs> They're Turn- supposed to be opening up for the Ronettes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So they're recording a song and they want a woman to sing this part. Uh-huh. And so she's laying in bed like, crap, she's pregnant, like major pregnant. Yeah. And her husband's like, you need to get down there and sing that. She's like, I'm not going. He's like, guess you are. Oh. She's like, fine. So she's stomping around. She says she was really mad. She gets down there. They introduce themselves. She's like, okay, hi, uh, Mick, you know, Keith, mm-hmm. you know, uh, who are you guys? Like, oh, yeah. the Rolling Stones. Okay. Great. And Mick had written this part in the song that he really wanted to be sung by a female. Yeah. And the words were rape and murder. Mm -hmm. It's just a shot away. Yeah. So she sings it with a lot of personality and Mick's like, yeah, that's perfect. Could you do it one more time? And she's kind of pissed because it's three o'clock in the morning. Right. And so she says, yeah, I'll do it. And in her head, she's like, I'm going to sing this next version, and I'm going to blow them out of this room. Uh-huh. And that's where you get this part right here. She is singing so hard, her voice is cracking and breaking, and it's so passionate. So we get this incredible piece of this incredible song, but it has a tragic ending. Yeah, it does. The next day, she has a miscarriage. Oh, it's terrible. I thought that was urban legend. I heard her say that right from her very mouth. Yeah. That the stress and strenuous nature of this song, she believes, caused that miscarriage. Yep. She's been a backup singer for... Literally dozens and dozens of amazing acts. She sang with Clyde King. She sang with Leonard Skinner. Sweet Home Alabama. That's her you're listening to. Yeah. Sing in the background. She co-starred with Ali Sheedy in Made to Order. Oh my gosh, are you serious? Yeah, and a little bit, same year, she was a major character in the final season of Cagney and Lacey. Oh. And... You ready? Yep. In 1989, she recorded a cover version of the song Almost Paradise with Eric Carmen. Whoa! That's a deep cut right there. Good job. I had no idea about that. Okay, so one final tragedy, though. 2014, she was in a car crash in Los Angeles, California, and both of her legs had to be amputated. Tragic. When she woke up, the doctor was checking on her mental state. Mm Mm-hmm. And he said, I just want you to know, I had to take your legs. Mm. She said, can I still sing? <laughs> and he said, yeah. And she said, then I'm okay. Oh, that's fantastic. That's that's amazing. What a great, yeah, that's a great one. All right, hit stop on your tape player. Kick it out, flip it over. Side two, Dirty Dancing Soundtrack. Thank you. 
this this song is one that I recognize, but it's not the group that I was expecting. Right. It's not the singer that I was expecting. Right. I looked. I can't figure out where this song is in the I don't remember. Movie. Yeah, I don't remember. I, I'm not really sure. And obviously there was something where they had to get a different group to sing the song because this is not the 60s version of the song. But it's on the album. We're going to talk about it. Okay, let's go. All right, so this song was originally recorded by a female singer named Leslie Gore. She recorded it when she was only 17 years old, but she had already had two mega hits before that. Tell me. At 16, she had had It's My Party, which was a number one hit in 1963. Yes. Followed up by another top 40 hit called Judy's Turn to Cry. And then she comes out with You Don't Own Me is her third big hit all by the time that she's turned 17. That's incredible. This song is like women's power song before you had this real big feminist movement that occurred expresses like emancipation and says hey you don't own me I get to do what I want to do and you don't tell me and you don't put me in a place I wonder if Phil Spector wrote this song <laughs> I don't know I think somebody came up to her and says nobody puts baby in the corner she said you're right nobody puts baby in the corner <laughs> this song reached number two February 1st 1964 yeah the number one song that it could not overcome I want to hold your hand by the Beatles uh, there you go <laughs> so this song was covered by a group called the Blow Monkeys. I'm not familiar with these guys. They they are a UK band and they've had a few hits. I remember one song that they had in the 80s that was pretty big. Yeah. In 86 called Digging Your Scene. Yeah. It was on their second album, Animal Magic, which got to number 21 on the UK albums chart. It got attention because it was talking about the backlash against gay people with AIDS being a pandemic at the time. Okay. So January of 87, before Dirty Dancing comes out, they released their third album called She Was Only a Grocer's Daughter, which is a reference to the Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, at the time. Okay. It got to number 20 in the UK, and then it got to number five in the UK, and number 28 in Italy. Wasn't released in the United States, and so it didn't chart there. But it was featured in a movie, Police Academy 4, <laughs> Citizens on Patrol. Oh, I love the Police Academy <laughs> movies. That's fantastic. Yeah. Hey, I'll tell you who did cover this. Yeah. Joan Jett released a cover of this song as her first solo single in 1979. Yeah. Which is kind of cool in itself. Yep. But the B-side of that single uh-huh. was an early version of I Love Rock and Roll. Nice. How about that? That's awesome. Hey, I'll tell you where I know this song from, and uh-huh. this is going to be weird. Maybe yeah. it's just me. Yeah. But the NFL released a commercial a couple of years ago uh-huh. dedicated to their line of clothing, and Alyssa Milano sang the song wow. on the video. Wow. Alyssa Milano. Yes. Of Who's the Boss fan? <laughs> <laughs> okay, we done with this one? Yep. All right. I'm in the mood for some country. You got any country on this album? Well, let's see if we can oblige you here. This song is unmistakable. I don't know that I've heard very many songs that sound anywhere near this song, but it is one that people just know. You just know, hey baby. Yeah. This song is by Bruce Channel. 
Okay. He originally was a performer for a radio program called Louisiana Hayride. <laughs> then he joined up with a harmonica player. Yes. Which you can hear in this song. His name is Delbert McClinton. And they were doing country music together. And Bruce wrote the song Hey Baby with Margaret Cobb in 1959. Performed the song for two years before they recorded it. Recorded it in Fort Worth with... Producer Bill Smith, and the song went to number one in the U.S. in March 1962, held that position for three weeks. Now, this country singer gets to go tour Europe. Yeah. And he was assisted at one of the gigs by the Beatles. Oh, wow. Who were unknown at the time. John Lennon, who had heard Hey Baby, actually had it on his own jukebox, was amazed by McClinton's harmonica playing. And legend is that Lennon got taught how to play the harmonica, or at least how to play it better, by McClinton. And if you listen to the song Love Me Do, you can hear those skills. Play that for you real quick. You're blowing my mind. There you go. That's fantastic. So this is the first number one hit on the Hot 100 with an exclamation point in the title. (laughs) Fantastic. There you go. Love it. And this was used in the movie when they were on top of the log and they're working on their dancing and ballads. Yes. Yeah. So there you go. Okay. We're done with that one? Yep. All right. Moving on to the next song called Overload by Alfie Zappacosta. This overload... Okay, this was not on my playlist in 1987-88 or any year thereafter. (laughs) Okay. You mentioned the singer's name is Zappacosta. Yep. I don't know anything else that he has done except for the radio commercial jingle for Pizza Nova. Are you serious? (laughs) That's it. That's all I got. Wow. Recorded in the same year that he recorded this. Okay, well, here's what I got. I got one thing on this guy. Feed it to me, yeah. All right. So, obviously, they had a budget for this album, and once they got done paying Phil Spector, (laughs) there wasn't a lot left over, right? Right. So, they needed some songs, so Jimmy Einer had to look around and be creative, right? Right. So, he found this Canadian singer-guitarist named Alfie Zappacosta. Yep. He agreed to write and cut Overload for $2,000. Oh, boy. Okay. There you go. 2000 bucks for this one. Yeah, I doubt he got anything on the back end either. How would you like to get two grand and no royalties from an album that sold 32 million copies? I would not like that very much. I feel a little bit like Vincent Price and Thriller. Exactly. <laughs> he did get twice as much as Vincent got, though. <laughs> That's true. Okay, are we done with this one? Uh, let's be done with this one. I'd be fast-forwarding through this one already. All right. The next song is a song called Love is Strange. Hey, Jason. <laughs> How do you call your lover boy? (laughs) Please do not say that to me. Okay, tell me who this song is by. Mickey and Sylvia. Mickey and Sylvia. So Mickey is Mickey Baker. Born in Louisville, Kentucky, his mother was black and his father, who he never met, was probably white. Okay. 36, at the age of 11, he was put into an orphanage, ran away, had to be retrieved by the staff from St. Louis, New York City, Chicago, and Pittsburgh. This is 
this guy's got some legs on him. He's, he can move at 11 or 12 or whatever he is. Eventually, the orphanage quit looking for him. At the age of 16, he stayed in New York City. He worked as a dishwasher and a laborer, but when he was hanging out in the pool halls, he realized he could become a full-time pool shark. That lasted for a little while until he decided to change his life, went back to dishwashing, and was determined to become a jazz musician. And he was going to play the trumpet. And then he went to the store with $14, and they said, well, you don't have enough. Would you like a guitar? Oh, my gosh. And that's how he became a guitar player. (laughs) <laughs> By 1949, yeah, he had his own combo, had a few paying jobs, decided to go out to California, but they were not receptive to progressive jazz music in California at that time. So he got stranded in California. Then he saw a show by a blues guitarist named Pee Wee Creighton, and he saw that Pee Wee Creighton was driving a nice car, and he's like, hey, can you actually make money playing this simple blues stuff? And he's like, oh, yeah. He said, so I started bending strings, I was starving to death, and blues was just the financial thing for me right then. So, starts playing the blues. By the mid-1950s, he's a music instructor, and he has a student in his class named Sylvia. When you leave me, sweet kisses I miss. (sighs) That is fantastic. He gets inspired by the musical duo of Les Paul and Mary Ford and says, we should make a duo together. And that is how the group Mickey and Sylvia form. Okay. So they start doing tours together. They end up sharing a bill with Bo Diddley. Okay. They hear Bo Diddley play this song called Love is Strange. And they say, hey, can we record that? And he says, sure, go for it. Single was released in November of 56. It became their biggest hit, topped the U.S. R&B charts, and was number 11 on the U.S. pop charts in 57. They recorded a second version of it. You know this one? No. They recorded a second version of it in 1962, and it featured a drummer on his first paid session gig. Okay. The drummer's name was Bernard Pretty Purdy, who later went on to develop the Purdy Shuffle, which we <laughs> talked about as the inspiration for the drum beat of the Toto song Rosanna. It comes full circle. Dude, that you that is blowing my mind. That is fantastic. They eventually broke up, but Sylvia had some success afterwards. So Sylvia had a song in 1973 that reached number three. Okay, it's called Pillow Talk. Mm-hmm. So I listened to Pillow Talk. She simulates an orgasm in this uh, song. What? In the 70s, what? early 70s. Oh, yeah. Here's the other thing. More important than that. Uh-huh. She creates Sugar Hill Records. Yeah. Which you may have heard of because they put together the Sugar Hill Gang, yeah. who had the breakthrough hip-hop song, Rapper's Delight. I said a hip Go back and check out our Beastie Boys versus Run DMC episodes with Mr. Def Dave, David Wright. Um, I remember having Sugar Hill Records when I was a kid. I remember having Rapper's Delight off the Sugar Hill label. When I saw that, I nearly fell out of my chair. Yep. Her, her maiden name was Vanderpool, but she married a guy named Joe Robinson, and so she was Sylvia Robinson and... He and she formed Sugar Hill Records together in 79. That's fantastic. So I got just a couple of things for you here, yeah. okay? 
So it's the from the famous scene in the movie where Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey are actually like lip syncing the words to each other. Yeah. Sylvia. Yes, Mickey. How you call your lover boy? Come here, lover boy. And if he doesn't answer? Oh, lover boy. And if he still doesn't answer? I simply say, crawling around on the floor and it's super sexy little air guitar going on yes so Eleanor Bernstein watched it she's like wow this is fantastic this has to stay in the movie problem is we don't have the budget for this song worse than that they can't just pluck it out like plug and play with something else because they lip sync to it yeah it's the best part of the scene and so everybody's watching it going oh crap what are we going to do and so luckily they managed to get the music authorized, but they were really nervous for a little bit that they were going to have to cut this scene for financial reasons. Awesome. You know what other movie this uh, this song appears in? Tell me. I'm not kidding. Deep Throat. <laughs> in fact, it caused a second resurgence of this song. The fact that it was in Deep Throat? Yeah. Well, I mean, it was a very popular movie. There you time. go. Deep cut. How about that? Deep something. Okay. <laughs> okay. On to the next song. This next song is called Where Are You Tonight? Where, where are you? T- oh, that's Hee Haw. I'm sorry. Wrong song. I want to know Where are you tonight? Tonight, tonight. I want to know All right, this is a new song. Another 80s hit because it's a new song. This is by Charles Thomas Johnson, who was one of the founding members of the Doobie Brothers. Yeah, that blew me away. This yeah. guy's in the Doobie Brothers. Yeah, he went on and had his own solo career afterwards, and that includes him getting a call from Jimmy Einer saying, hey, we need another song for this album. Yeah, when Jimmy Einer called him, he said he had to go to a remote studio in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And he said it was just a paper mill town that smelled bad. And he's like, well, who cares? That's fine, whatever. So he cut this song when he turned it in. Had never seen the movie. Didn't know anything about it. Mm -hmm. And then found out later, of course, that the soundtrack was this massive sensation. Yeah. Said he got a new BMW out of the deal. Nice. So. It's got, it's the feel, though it's an 80s song. It has a feel very much like the older songs that are on this album. I agree. It's got a doo-woppy, finger-snapping, R&B feel to it. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Moving on? Now we're moving on to a song that actually was an R&B song. Maybe the R&B song. The doo-wop song of all doo-wop songs. This song is called In the Still of the Night. (laughs) I was waiting for it. I was waiting for it. I'm like, if you don't play Whitesnake right now, I'm going to not forgive you. I couldn't resist. I knew it. I knew it was coming, and I'm glad you did it. Hey, I'm glad I didn't disappoint, but we are covering that song later this summer. It's another hit from 1987, and it's the third Still of the Night. There is a Still of the Night by Cole Porter as well. They changed the spelling of night on this one so that those two songs didn't get confused. Still of the night. 
This song is by the Five Satins. They formed in New Haven, Connecticut in 1954. Started off with Fred Paris and had Lewis Peoples, Stanley Dorch, Ed Martin, Jimmy Freeman, and Nat Mosley. They didn't have a whole lot of success. A little bit. Not a whole lot. This song was written by Fred Paris and they recorded it in the St. Bernadette Catholic School basement in New Haven, Connecticut, February 1956. <laughs> Just after church one day. <laughs> So. Can I use the basement? Sure, go ahead. This song is one of the only songs to be released and chart three times as its original form. Yeah. It also has been released and charted by Boys to Men. That's how I know it from the 90s version of the Boys to Men. I knew the song. I knew the song in the still of the night well before this. I actually kind of listened to 50s music even before Dirty Dancing made it cool again. Okay. So I was familiar with it, but I did not know about the Debbie Gibson version. Yeah, Debbie Gibson. That's cool. They didn't realize that how good this song was. It was released originally as the B-side to another single. What? Yeah, it was on the single called The Jones Girl. Wow. And it ended up charting at number three on the R&B chart and number 25 on the pop chart. Wow. Okay. In a case of painfully bad timing, the group's lead singer was drafted into the army right <laughs> after the success of In the Still of the Night. So they had to reorganize again, but eventually he came back. <laughs> I wrote this hit song and now I'm in the army. Yep. I did read that Fred Paris wrote this about a former girlfriend. Mm -hmm. She moved away. He tried to contact her, couldn't. So it's likely that there's a woman out there who doesn't even realize that this song is written about her. Wow. Iconic song. The doo-wop song of all doo-wop songs. You ready to move on? Okay. Wait a minute. Did we forget anything? We've talked about 11 songs, but there's 12 songs on the album. What happened? I guess it's time to kick in the finale and have the time of our life. Now I have the time of my life. No, I never felt like this before. Yes, I swear it's a truth. And I owe it all to you. Okay, we knew that we skipped it, everybody. We knew we skipped it, but how do you not put this song at the end? This belongs this at the end. is the finale. It is the finale. You have to close with this one, or else people will be stampeding for the doors uh, on our podcast. <laughs> so once again, this is a song that is written by Frankie Privet and John DiNicola. So here's how this happens. Okay. Jimmy Einer, who knows Frankie Privet, yep. calls him up and says, I got a movie. I need you to write a song for it. Yeah. And he's like, what's the name of the movie? Dirty Dancing. He's like, oh my gosh. Jimmy's doing porn movies. <laughs> Again? <sighs> He's like, no, 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 no. And in five minutes, he tells him the plot of the movie, right? Yes. Girl, boy, love, dancing, all of that good stuff. 60s. Right. He says, this is, I, I need this as the finale song, right? This is going to be our finale song. I think it could change your life. Frankie Privet's like, okay. He goes, there's just one problem. Frankie Privet's like, okay. He goes... It has to be seven minutes long. <laughs> he said, what? Yeah. He goes, well, the finale is seven minutes long, so the song has to be seven minutes long. He's like, okay. All right. I'll give it a try. I'll see what he can do. Right. And so he comes up with the music for it. He's got this kind of idea of what it should be. He records that. He's listening to it in his car. He calls... Jimmy Einer and plays the track for him. He's like, how does this sound? He goes, that's great. Develop that into a full song. So he's listening to it in his car. He's on the Garden State Parkway, exit 140. 
<laughs> okay. And he's he's got this this Jimmy Einer said this song could change your life, and the only word that he can think of is the end word, which is life. Life, life, and then he comes up with it. I had the time of my life, and the rest is history. That's a great story. Yeah. I heard that when Jimmy Einer called him, yeah. that he said, number one, it's got to be seven minutes long. Yeah. Also, it's got to start slow, finish fast, and have a mamba beat. Oh, by the way, it's got to be a hit because, you know, it's the most important song in the entire movie. Right. The version that they listened to when they were filming the movie was the version that Pranky Privet recorded. It's his voice, the demo, right? Right. When you see Patrick Swayze lip-syncing the words... He's lip-syncing to Frankie Privet, not to Bill Medley. That's incredible. So, okay, when Jimmy Einer is going around trying to find people to record the vocals for this song, knowing that it's the most important song, that it's the finale, that you've got to knock it out of the park, he goes to Donna Summer and Lionel Richie. You know what they say? No. No. Not interested. Who's this movie? I mean, what what are we talking about here? Right. Now, it's important to note, they weren't sure that this was going to be the song initially. They listened to multiple tapes of multiple songs trying to figure out what the best song for the finale was. Right. And and it's Kenny Ortega, the choreographer, who's listened to the song with Miranda Richardson, trying to find the perfect song, and they go after tape, after tape, after tape, and they can't figure it out, and they get to the very last tape. And he says, and I hear it, is it just because we're on the very last tape that I think that this has to be the right song? Right. And, she, they're like, and she's like, no, this is it. This is, this is the one that it has to be. Oh, that's fantastic. No. They also asked Daryl Hall and Kim Carnes. Okay. Now, interestingly, Daryl Hall had covered The Righteous Brothers. That's exactly right. Interesting. Okay. Go okay. ahead. Okay. So, they said no as well because Dirty Dancing, we don't know the producer, we don't know the director, we don't know the lead actors. Right. Patrick Swayze, who's that? Right. Jennifer Grey, never heard of her. Right. And so they went to Bill Medley and they're like, hey, Bill, you're the voice of the 60s. He actually was coming off a very popular moment in time because Top Gun had sort of reintroduced him to pop culture. Yep. From You've Lost That Love and Feeling, right? Yep. All right. So they went to him and he's like, no, my wife's getting ready to have a baby. I promised her I'd be there for the birth. I don't have time for this. I'm not doing it. Okay. Yeah. So then they went to Jennifer Warrens. Now she had done Up Where I Belong Uh and Right Time of the Night from the 70s. Yeah. Okay. She's got a real strong voice. Very strong. But she, she was like, you know, when I looked at it, there was three writers on the song. Mm-hmm. To me, that's a giant red flag. <laughs> right. She's like, I almost just said, no way. But she said she started warming to the idea as long as Bill Medley was seen with her. And so Jimmy Einer kept calling him saying, did she have the baby yet? Did she have the baby yet? Did she have the baby yet? He's like, you, you have to do this. You're the voice of the 60s. You have got to do this. Yeah. And when they finally changed the recording venue from New York to LA where Medley lived. Yeah. Baby was born. We're coming to LA. You got to do this. Jennifer says she'll do it if you do it. Uh-huh. He finally caved. So this is the the tidbit that blew me away. Yeah. And I never knew this. I've heard this song a thousand times in my life. Yeah. Okay. Bill Medley and Jennifer Warrens are supposed to be the older 
versions of Johnny Castle and Baby okay. singing to each other. That's great. About the events in the movie. Yeah. So, a little history on Bill Medley. Okay. We all know him from the Righteous Brothers, right? Yep. But the Righteous Brothers didn't have a whole lot of success initially. Okay. He had been in a couple of other groups. He ended up ended up forming the Righteous Brothers with Bobby Hatfield by mid-60s. Hadn't had a whole lot of success. But in 1964, they appeared in a show with some other groups at the Cow Palace in San Francisco. The Cow Palace? The Cow Palace. Okay. There was a conductor for the band for the entire show, who is impressed by them and said, I would like to record you on my own record label. You know who the conductor was? David Page is dead? Phil Spector. Phil Spector. So, in 65, with Phil Spector, they have their first number one hit with You've Lost That Love and Feeling, which was produced by Phil Spector. And then, later on, they had another major hit with Unchained Melody, which then showed up Later in Ghost? the 80s with yep. Ghost and Patrick Swayze, yes. Wow. I didn't even think about that having a Patrick Swayze connection. Yeah. I mentioned at the outset, we're going to talk about two murders. And so far, we've only talked about one. Okay. You ready? Yes. Bill Medley met his first wife, Karen O'Grady, in church. They started dating in 1963, and they were married at the beginning of his music career. They had a son named Darren in 1965, but ultimately, they got divorced when he was about Five. Okay. Fast forward to 1976. His first wife, Karen, had remarried at that point. Her name was Karen Class. She was raped and murdered by a stranger. And in 76, because of this, Medley stopped performing music to take care of their 10-year-old son, Darren. The murder had not been solved, and Medley employed a private investigator to try to track down the killer. On January 27th, 2017, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department announced that investigators used a controversial DNA testing method to solve the murder that was at this point 30 years old. 40 years old. We're talking 76 to 2017. 41 years later. Whoa. They said that the case was solved through the use of familial DNA, which identified the killer named Kenneth Troyer, a sex offender and fugitive killed by the police in 1982. Oh my gosh, dude, that's incredible. I don't know where you came up with that, but that's great. Now, yep. a little lighter note. Okay. Jennifer Warnes. Yes. She had mild success as a solo artist, right? Uh-huh. She seems to do pretty well when she does duets. In 68... After a few years in musical theater and clubs, she joined the cast of a television show called The Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. <laughs> We've talked about that. Yes, in our Toto episode, which would later be hosted by Glenn Campbell, Marty Page. Yes, it's all first full circle, but this is the tidbit that I love. 1985, she recorded a duet. Like She's great with these duets in the 80s. Uh-huh. With B.J. Thomas. Okay. And the song is As Long As We've Got Each Other. Do you recognize the title? Yeah. Okay, let me play it for you. Show me that smile. Ooh, show me that smile. Don't waste enough. It's family ties. It's family freaking ties. It's growing pains. It's growing pains. <laughs> it's growing pains. There you go. Oh. 
That's awesome. Yeah. Way so to go. She has a lot of success with 80s duets. We've got the Growing Pains theme. We've got Dirty Dancing and the best song off of the album. And we have Joe Cocker from Officer and a Gentleman and Lift Us Up Where We Belong. Man. Those are big time. Huge. Those are big time. Huge. Speaking of duets, I mentioned that the album came out a month before the movie, okay? Yep. And they dropped the song, I've Had the Time of My Life, a week or so before the scheduled release of the movie. Yeah. Well, the movie was delayed by about a month. Uh-huh. And so Time of My Life is out there just kind of hanging, unboosted by the movie. Right. And it's kind of floundering. It's not really doing anything. Like, okay? it hit the charts, but then it's starting to drop in. It's nothing really happened. It kind of landed with a dud, right? Uh-huh. Which blows me away. Right. Until a month later when the movie came out... Bill Medley said he was actually at the release party of the movie, yeah. and they were already, already talking about the second single to drop. And he's yeah. like, guys. we haven't even given this a chance yet, guys. Yeah. Okay? But so it almost fell off the charts. So once the movie was released, though, the song, of course, took off, and he had just done a duet with Gladys Knight for the movie Cobra. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And that song was called Loving on Borrowed Time. And so he's on the road with the Righteous Brothers, and the DJ said, Hey man, they're playing the hell out of your song right now. Yeah. And he's like, Which one? What are you talking about? And and the guy said, The song with that girl. (laughs) Right? And he's like, The song with that girl. Are you talking about Gladys Knight? He said, I don't know, man. And so he said, by the time they got off the road about two weeks later, they were the number one song all over the world. He had no idea what was happening while he was on tour. It's fantastic. So with this song, they not only hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100, they spent four weeks at number one on the adult contemporary chart. Yep. They win the Oscar for Best Original Song. This is the third one, by the way, for Jennifer Warrens. They win... Huh. The Golden Globe, same category. Yep. And they win the Grammy. Listen to this. When they re-released the movie for television audiences in January of 1991, the song charted again. (sighs) It's a great song. It's a great song. And like I said before, if you don't get a little bit misty when he does the lift, <laughs> there's something wrong with you. You need to examine your heart. Yeah, yeah. So, I'm sorry. We tricked you, everybody. We took the first song and we put it last, but how do you not have that song as the finale? And you got to. Yeah. By the way, this is still showing up. In the movie Crazy Stupid Love with Ryan Gosling and uh-huh. Emma Stone, Yeah. they do the lift uh-huh. to the song. Yes. And then in 2018, during the Super Bowl, the NFL ran a spot where Eli Manning and Odell Beckham Jr. do the lift. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, I'm ready. I'm going to catch you. Come on. One, two, three. Yes! (laughs) Woo! I knew we could do it. (laughs) What a final song. It's so important to the movie, and it really, it's the heart of the movie. It's a joyful song. I feel like dancing. I feel like doing the lift. 
it makes me feel great. Everybody, if you've listened to us this long, don't forget to hit that follow button. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. If you can write a review for us that says nobody puts baby in the corner. Or time of my life. Yes. Well, I mean, that's pretty easy to put in review. So easy peasy. Put time of my life. Or if you are feeling like a challenge, nobody puts baby in the corner, put that in a five-star review and you'll be entered into a contest to win one of our awesome metal cups custom engraved with your name and the Surely You Can't Be Serious logo. Be sure and check out our Patreon page if you feel like giving a little money to the podcast. We spend hours of time to do this and we want to bring it to you for free, but if you're feeling generous, we'd love the donation as well. Come back next week as we go track by track through one of the biggest albums of the 70s, the soundtrack to Saturday Night Fever. We're going to be BGing all over the place. Thanks, guys.